All right, we are going to get started. Look around, see who's not here today, and next time you see them, give them much grief for missing the most salacious chapter. Actually, that's probably why they're not here. They didn't want to talk about all the incest in Leviticus 18. But you guys are here because you do want to talk about all the incest in Leviticus 18, so that we shall. We looked last week, we started Leviticus 18, and we talked about how 18 through 20 is like the heart of the holiness code, and it's a special section where God is telling the Israelites, not only don't do these things, but he gives them a reason why. This is one of the few places in Leviticus where he gives them like a tangible actual reason why they're not to do these things. 18 is, like we said last week, it's the sex chapter, and it talks about all the practices that the Canaanites and the Egyptians both did that God was saying, you shall not do. And sexuality in the ancient Near East, we've said this before, and it's worth repeating, sexuality was tied up with worship. Sexuality and idolatry were kind of hand in hand. And one of the primary ways that people uh, participated in worship of the various gods or, or thought that they expressed their spirituality was through their sexuality. And there's a, there's a good theological reason for that going all the way back to Genesis 1 that man and woman were created to be one flesh, that the sex act was created as kind of the center of the male-female relationship. And it's, it's what it means uh, collectively, not with every individual, but collectively it's what it means to be the image of God. If you go back to the first poem in the Bible, it was the Genesis 1, where God creates man in his image, and the image of God created him, male and female, he created them. And so it talked about the husband and wife coming together, and one flesh was created, this one flesh bond. And so in, in biblical Hebrew, there's this concept of the nakedness of someone, the naked, not, the, not, not what we would consider the nudity, but rather, like we said last week, the nakedness, the sexual uh, nakedness of the other person. And there were, the idea was that only through this, this relationship that, that's instilled in marriage do you gain, for lack of a better word, the right to this person's nakedness. And Paul talks about that in the New Testament as well. He says, you know, the husband's wife does not, or the husband's body does not belong to the husband, but belongs to the wife. Likewise, the wife's body does not belong to herself, but to her husband. And so you're not to deprive one another uh, of that sexual intimacy. That's very much a part of the created order that's very good. So there's a concept of the nakedness of blank, means the sexual relationship that only blank is to participate in. So all throughout this chapter, <clears throat> it'll say, uh, you shall not, and the NIV translates it as they interpret it rather than translate it. So they, they say, uh, you shall not have sexual relations with, uh, and then they say, for it will dishonor you. And <clears throat> that term, have sexual relations with, literally in Hebrew, every time you see that term in your NIV in this chapter, if you're reading NIV, it literally says um, that to uncover the nakedness of. That's, what it, that's what's translated as have sexual relations with. So the NIV here, uh, I like the NIV just fine, but in this case it does a little over-interpretation because you miss out on the idiom or the phrase that the biblical Hebrew uses. And then when it says, uh, in every one of these laws, it says that would dishonor blank, like that would dishonor you or that would dishonor your father or whatever. Literally, that, it's not even a verb. It just says that is the nakedness of blank. So, don't have sex with your mom. Why? Because that's the nakedness of your father. 
That's the reason that it's given. And, and NIV really overinterprets it in this case and says that would dishonor you. But that, the verb for honor and dishonor is not anywhere in there. It's, uh, it's, it's speaking to this concept of there are certain realms in which you are not, you, you don't have free access to the nakedness of anyone you choose. God restricts that, which is very much contrasting with the cultures that Israel was surrounded by. So what he does is, we looked last week at the beginning, he sets out the stipulations, and he says, verse 5, keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And meaning, the person who obeys them will live in the land. It's not a tautology. It's not saying the person who obeys them is the person who lives by them. It's saying the person who obeys them in this covenant will experience the benefits of this covenant. And the main benefits of the covenant are long life in the land. That's the whole covenant is bound up with Israel entering the land and receiving God's blessing. And Deuteronomy will expand on this majorly in its closing chapters. So God's laying it out, says these sexual behaviors are part of what it means to be my covenant people. My covenant people have to act differently. They have to think differently. They have to behave differently. They have to have sex differently than what you're used to. And he's telling this to people who have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And before that, whose ancestors wandered in Canaan. And they're leaving Egypt, and they're going into Canaan. And Egypt and Canaan both have sexual practices that are vastly different from what God wants of his people. So now he's going to say, verse 6, we saw last week, says, No one is to approach any close relative in order to have sexual relations, for I am the Lord. Then in the next few verses, through chapter, through verse 17, these are going to be examples so it's going to, the law, don't approach any close relative. Now, here are examples of what I mean. He spells those out in the next verses through verse 17. He says, uh, verse 7, do not dishonor your father. And that's, do not uncover the nakedness of your father. By having sexual relations with your mother. She's your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Or that is the nakedness of your father. Now it's different. Who your mother and your father's wife are not necessarily the same person. When there are step, uh, second marriages and stepchildren and all that kind of stuff involved. So it's basically ruling out anyone who's that mother figure for you. And this would be important in cultures where the mother goddess or mother goddesses are prominent. And so mother and, and, and child and the bond that, that exists there gets distorted and twisted and perverted. And all of these practices were found either in Egypt or in Canaan or sometimes in both. Um, verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Verse 9, do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father, for she is your sister. Now, that's interesting. Because that's exactly what the patriarchs, some of the patriarchs did. The, the marriage to half-sister, Abraham did that. So right here in this, we see that, that even, even the paragons of faith in the Old Testament, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they did not, uh, they, they, their relationships were not ideal. We can't look at the patriarchs and their relationships in marriage and say that's what God wants. Because God in his word is saying that's not the ideal. It's what the nations before did. It's what the na And remember, Abraham was Babylonian. It's what they did. But I'm calling you to be different. So now, 
Even the patriarchal relationships are shown as being deficient in the light of Torah. And it'll be, uh, it'll be taken to an even higher level when Jesus comes along and takes the command of marriage all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve and says that even Torah was temporary for a while in some of its marriage and sexuality uh, pronouncements, such as divorce, as the example Jesus uses. So it goes on to say, uh, do not, let's see, verse 11, verse 12, do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She's your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister. She is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have sexual relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter, her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. So it ends this section. It's, it's, it's stamping out this concept of incest. Now why? Well, we said last week, incest was one of the ways that the Egyptian royal families consolidated their powers. Incest was also rampant in cultures that are um, endogenous, where there's marriage within the family because it's a tribal-based, clan-based culture. So there's a fear of other clans or a desire not to let your clan's wealth be dispersed into other clans through other marriages. So there was pressure to marry kind of within the group. And this is perfectly normal in nomadic cultures and tribal cultures and even today cultures throughout Africa uh, and elsewhere practice this because those the, the idea is you don't there's a limit you can't marry or you can't have sex with you know somebody who's super super close but there's sort of it gets a little fuzzy the further away you move from your direct family and so what God's doing is he's delineating this this entering into this tribal culture and saying look here are the limits here's when you get closer than this off limits this would also, what this would do, would protect the women who were not treated great in the Old Testament. Uh, women, a lot of times, were almost used as, as status currency. You know, you marry, into some, you marry someone into your family to increase your wealth. You take another wife to increase your wealth even more. That wife has a child. Uh, you, you know, what's to stop you from taking that child as your wife when they're a little bit older? I mean, this kind of things happen. Just human perversion is, I mean, five minutes on the Internet is enough to prove human perversion in the area of sexuality is everywhere. In anything you can do sexually that's wrong, people have figured out a way to do it and to package it and to sell it to other people who want to see it. So this is all the way back in you know, thousands of years, God is putting limits and he's doing it in distinctly to contrast Israel from those cultures. This is a point that, that I think carries relevance today is all the way back in Israel, God's called his people to be sexually countercultural. And that's something that churches have lost. That's something, I, you know, I, I encounter Christians all the time. They go to church. They put Bible verses on their Instagram. They talk about loving Jesus on their dating profiles and this and that. And they are as sexually active as any other person in the world and not married. And I, I just think somewhere along the way you've missed it. You, you, you either haven't been told or you've been told but you've ignored it. That God's people have always been called to sexual holiness. Now, what that looks like in every case, there's, there's some differences, and it's going to depend, and, and you know, we'll get into that more, especially as Scripture goes along. But there is a call to be separate, to be holy, which is the whole point of the Levitical covenant for Israel. So now it's going to go on to talk about other relationships. Uh, verse 18 is kind of a pivot verse. 
Verse 18, now this is where verse 18, there's two ways that it can be translated. And this, this makes a fairly big difference. I'm going to read the traditional translation first. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Now, who would this bring to mind for those of you who are with us in Genesis? What, what family would this call to mind, taking a, a wife's sister as a wife? Who did that? Jacob. Yeah, what's Jacob's other name? Israel. Israel. The people of Israel are based on a family that did this. Jacob took, now he got tricked into it, it was Laban and Jacob together. But while one wife was still alive, he took another. And it created this rift that almost tore the family apart. It created brothers selling each other into slavery. It created fathers inadvertently sleeping with their daughters-in-law as she disguised herself as a prostitute. It created all of this dysfunction. And God's saying here, if this translation is correct, he's saying don't do that because this, your family is already under enough pressure. If you add into the marital element between sisters, then that, all, that takes it up to another level. That's what would be saying if this were the right translation. However, literally in Hebrew, what this says is a woman to her sister you shall not take as your wife while your other wife is still living. That phrase, literally it says, a woman to her sister you shall not take. Now, the reason that that's even worth mentioning is because the way you... Exodus, let me just make a note of this. Exodus 26, 3. Way back in Exodus, chapter 26. There's a verse that says, you are to join these rings of the curtain together. And the way it says join these rings of the curtain together is a woman to her sister. In other words, the phrase a woman to her sister or a man to his brother is not always a literal phrase. That is the idiomatic way in Hebrew of saying two of these things. So if you say, you know, a man to his brother is a way of saying any two guys. Uh, a woman to her sister in, in Exodus 26 is a way of saying these two curtain rods, basically. But it, it's because that word is feminine, so it would use woman to the sister rather than man to his brother. But the point is, and this is what translators as far back as even the Dead Sea Scrolls took this or noted this. And they said this actually is not saying don't marry a woman's sister in addition to the woman while you're still alive. What it's saying is don't marry another woman. Period. While your wife is still living. In other words, some commentators, and they're in the minority, but they're not a fringe or unimportant. I mean, legitimate commentators. Uh, they look at this and they say, no, no, this is actually a biblical, perfectly normal Hebrew way of saying, don't take two wives at the same time. It creates rivalry. Which would bear out every time we see in the Old Testament when someone does take more than one wife, there is a sense of rivalry or dysfunction within the family. So it's not 100% either way, but it is, it is very possible, not conclusive, but it's very possible that Leviticus 18, 18 is a biblical prohibition of polygamy. That it does say, don't take two women in marriage. Now, like I said, not certain, but not out of the range either. So make up your own mind. If you want resources to look into that and hear the scholarly arguments, I'll give you the 
uh, the articles and you can check it out. But regardless, uh, it goes on then to say, verse 19, do not approach a woman to have sexual relations with her during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Uh, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So it rules out uh, sexual relations with your neighbor's wife. That would be covered under adultery anyway. Uh, but this is just hammering that home. And then it mentions uh, do not have sexual relations with a woman during her monthly period. Now, We've already seen that in the previous chapters how your period or any time a guy has an omission of semen in any way, shape, or form, that renders you ceremonially unclean. And if there's sexual contact with someone during the period, that renders you ceremonially unclean. But this is going beyond that. This, is, this passage is saying specifically, do not approach a woman in order to have sex with her during her period, which was a practice. Whenever things like blood and fertility and holiness and sex are all mingled together, then there's all kinds of weird things people do. And one of the things would be to specifically seek out to have sex with women during their period of time. Whether it was because you know there wouldn't be a pregnancy involved or whether because you thought it had powers or you know helped you in your fertility or whatever reason, uh, God's prohibiting you. And also because for women, it was a protection for the women. That they aren't just men can have free range whenever they want to. There are times where a woman needs seclusion, you know, especially when she's going through a period. So that's, no, you'll not do that, God's sake. And these are practices, again, I want to reiterate what we said last week. This chapter is picked up in the New Testament, in the letter of Acts, chapter 15, when the apostles are telling the Gentile converts to Christianity how they should live. And they give them commands which specifically echo the Levitical Holiness Code. In other words, they tell them, you don't have to keep Torah. You don't have to do all the food laws and the circumcision and this and that. Just do these things. And they list three, maybe four things that the Gentile Christians have to do. And lo and behold, they are drawn from the Holiness Code of Leviticus, Leviticus 18 through 20. So for the early Christians, there were some practices from the Old Testament that were binding beyond Israel. Not all of the law, but some of it. And it's, it's, it's this chapter in particular makes it clear. It's the practices that God was not just saying, you're not going to do this, Israel, because I want you to be different. He's saying, you're not going to do this, Israel. I want you to be different. And I judged the nations that did these things before you. So there are things that go beyond Israel that reflect God's moral standards that he does hold all of humanity accountable for under a sense of general revelation. And one of those things is how humans behave sexually. And again, there's way more to be said on that than we can get into in this chapter, but it, it, the idea, at least that I want you to grasp onto, is that the, the things that God's prohibiting in this chapter were not like, don't eat shrimp, don't wear two kinds of clothing, two kinds of thread garments, don't sow your fields a certain way. These, cut, these were beyond those prohibitions that applied only to Israel. These applied also to Egypt and to Canaan, and they both broke them, which is why God says he was judging those nations. So there is warrant for taking Leviticus and not reading the, the, the contents of chapter 18 the same way you read the contents of chapter, say, 25, 26, something like that. I mean, this, this is a particular passage within Leviticus that has universal application. 
if we take what God's saying here seriously. He goes on to talk about, do not offer your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. Moloch was a deity in the ancient Near East, and there's different accounts of what it meant, but what basically we can piece together from the archaeological remains and from the ancient Near East writings is Moloch was a god. Moloch just means king. It's a, it's a, the vowels are just different, but the consonants are the same as the Hebrew word Melech, which is king. And he was the god, the king, the one that they would have pledged their allegiance to. Uh, some say it was, he was king of or god of the underworld. That, that the Israelites, when they entered into their syncretism, where they worshipped God and other gods, that they believed, yes, Yahweh is in the heavens. He's the god of all the heavens and the earth. But under the earth, that's the realm of Moloch. And so to hedge our bets, we'll worship Yahweh in the temple, but we're also going to worship Moloch out in the fields or in the high places. So that would involve everything from like orgiastic practices and sexual fertility stuff, even to, and specifically with Moloch, to child sacrifice, whereby you would literally take your children and burn them as an offering to Moloch, a whole burnt offering. And God says over and over here and in Jeremiah that he detests that, that he never commanded it, never even entered his mind to, for his people to ever do that. So in the ancient world, children were seen as far more expendable than, than we consider today. Uh, we consider children like the most utmost importance as soon as they're out of the womb. Before they're out of the womb, we consider them expendable. So that is an area where we do reflect Moloch's culture. But after they're out of the womb, then we consider them like the, the, there's nothing more pure and more wonderful and more celebrated by everyone than a newborn baby. But in ancient Israel, and even before, even up until Bible times, something upwards of 50% of all children would die before they turned one years old. So there wasn't this as great an attachment on children until they reached, until you realized, all right, they're, they're going to be here for a while. And then there was the mother's son, you know, there, there was the, the bonding. But children were seen as far more expendable. And if you believed that your God controlled the fertility of your, your land, your people, everything, then if you also believed and were told that by sacrificing something valuable, that showed the God that you wanted to serve and that God would bless your people, then the sacrifices would gradually go up in importance. And you'd start with some oil, you'd start with some grains, then maybe some herds or her flocks, then the best of your herds or your flocks, and then even your firstborn son. And the prophets actually go about that in, uh, I think it's Amos, uh, might be Micah, I can't remember. But uh, it's, it's saying, God saying, I think it's Micah, God saying, Did I, what, what would you bring me? Did I ever ask for that? Do I, do I care if you offer me rivers of oil? Do I care if you offer me all of your flocks? Do I care if you, even if you offer me your firstborn son? No. What does the Lord require? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. So the prophets even condemned this attitude that Israel would adopt. And why did Israel adopt it? Because they moved into Canaan and they allowed Canaanite culture to intermingle with Israel's culture. Now, now that's hundreds of years in the future. At this point, though, God's laying out, no, you're going to be different. You're going to be different. Verse 22, uh, it says, do not, NIV again does a little, they, they don't bring out the best in this. Uh, NIV says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Literally, it says, do not have sex with a male. It doesn't say man. It doesn't use the word ish and isha, man and woman. It uses the word sakar, male. So this would rule out uh, not just what we would consider homosexuality, but also um, pederasty, pedophilia, using young boys or, or just 
which also was practiced in the ancient Near East through the different fertility rites. And there, there, were, there were ancient Near East prostitutes. They were called, male and female, they were called Kedashim, which means holy ones, because they were seen as holy. And the way that you celebrated your holiness and your devotion to the God was by having sex with a holy one, having sacred sex, so to speak, in order to get the God to bless your family, your crops, your herds, whatever. All these practices are, are interwoven. So some people look at this, especially in the modern debate about the Bible and sexuality, and they say, well, this, is just, this isn't talking about just two men that love each other or two women that love each other and they're committed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, that, there's some weight to that. This, this does have in mind sexuality that's been mingled with idolatry. So there, there is Deuteronomy, I mean, Leviticus is focusing on idolatrous sexual perversion. However, elsewhere in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, God does specifically talk about sexuality and does specifically make male and male and female and female sexual relationships outside the bounds of holiness. So the New Testament, and, and it, it's a universal view. I mean, there's literally no Judeo-Christian tradition before 50 years ago tops ever questioned that the Bible does prohibit all same-sex relationships. Only in the past 50 or so years have people started to go back and scholars have tried to revise, well, Paul's really talking about this, Leviticus is really talking about this, and, and to try to kind of provide some way to fit what is seen as our cultural sexual norm, which is same-sex, LGBT, all that stuff, to kind of fit that with Scripture without having to abandon Scripture completely, but also without having to reject the way of the world. And it gets even more convoluted when you have friends and family and loved ones who are come out as gay or transsexual, bisexual, whatever. So it becomes, ethics becomes real messy once people are involved. When it's on paper, ethics is easy. When it involves real people with real desires and real wants and needs and, and all of the messiness that comes along with it, then it gets kind of tricky. And that's an area where Christians have to have more grace than just pointing to Leviticus and yelling, holding a sign. But at the same time, they have to have enough biblical conviction to not just completely reinterpret or do away with what Scripture is actually saying because it's an easier gospel and it, and it's, it blends in with the culture better. And so that's the balance that we have to hold between the two extremes. Let me go on in the last few minutes. Uh, it goes on to say, verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. And that word animal is not animal, it's actually behemoth. It's the word cattle or livestock. I mean, it's the word for big, what we would call a farm animal. Um, a woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Now, this is something where everybody in the culture actually agrees with this, so it's not a big thing in our culture. However, in ancient Near East cultures, oh, animal sex was definitely known about and tolerated and even celebrated. Even if you read some of the Greco-Roman myths, you read about Zeus coming and impregnating someone as a bull. Uh, there, was, there were prohibitions in, I think it was Hittite, it might have been, I think it was Hittite, but there, in, in one of the ancient Near East cultures, there were prohibitions against having sex with, like sheep, uh, cattle, you know, different animals, but not horses and mules. So even in the ancient world, there was seen as, you know, deities were kind of like a mixture of people and animal. And, there, and, and so again, any kind of perversion you can imagine, people have done it. It's nothing new. And God here again is saying it's not going to happen among you. It's not going to be tolerated. So then the summary of this whole chapter, verses 24, 
through the end of the chapter. This is the summary. It says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you, which is the Canaanites, became defiled. Even the land was defiled so that I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. Aliens living among, you know, the sojourners, the immigrants, the non-Israelites living in Israel, they didn't have to keep all the feasts. They didn't have to keep the dress codes. They didn't have to keep the kosher food laws. They had to keep these laws. So again, this is different than some of the other prescriptions for Torah. This is, this is, this is categorically binding. And God's saying, the people who are coming, you're going to dispossess the Canaanites, the reason that you're going to dispossess them is because I promised your ancestor Abraham 400 years ago that by the time his descendants had come out of Egypt, that the iniquity of the Amorites, the, 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 the evilness, the, the debauchery, the utter corruption of these people in this particular plot of land would have reached its full measure. And that's what God's talking about alluding to here. Is part of it involves their, their violence and their economic oppression of the neighboring tribes and peoples and kingdoms, but also their sexual depravity. That is a factor. And their worshiping of Moloch. They're offering their children child sacrifice. God wasn't just mad at Canaanites because they didn't like him. You know, he didn't say, oh, go kill them all because they aren't on our side. There's none of that. That's, that's, that's totally imported into the Old Testament by people that just don't know their Old Testament very well, including many Christians, unfortunately. God's never been against the, quote, outsider. God is for the outsider. God goes out of his way to provide for the outsider. He's always done it all the way back to Genesis. When Hagar's out in the wilderness, he goes out providing. He appears to her face to face. God's never been about insider versus outsider. What he's been about is sin and holiness. And he's been about when people have become so corrupt that they're sleeping with all of their family members to consolidate power, when they're offering their children as sacrifices by burning babies alive to Moloch, when they're sleeping with animals in hopes that it'll bless them with fertility or give them power or prowess or whatever. At some point, there comes a time when God's, God's uh, his, his tolerance runs out. And the land, the image he says, is the land itself became polluted by their sin which harkens back to Noah and his day when God wiped the land. And so the land itself vomited them out. In other words, the land was seen as being just sick to its stomach with the Canaanites. And so the, their dispossession is to be the vomiting out of the land itself. And finally, what he goes on to say was, uh, verse 26, you must keep my decrees, all the native born, the aliens living among you. Verse 27, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. 28, this is worth underlining. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these accessible things, such person must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements. Do not follow the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am Yahweh your God. 28 is huge to remember. God said, if you do these things, this shows people say, again, Old Testament caricatures are everywhere. Oh, God was a xenophobic, nationalistic God who only cared about Israel. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. God holds Israel to the same standards that he holds Canaan to. And he said, if you do these practices, Israel, the land will vomit you out. 
just like it vomited out the Canaanites. And guess what? It happened. That's what the exile was. The land did vomit out its inhabitants because of their sinfulness. And God's people were almost completely wiped out except for the righteous remnant that God preserved miraculously up until the time of Jesus when he re-entered the land prophetically at his baptism and kept all of the commandments that God gave Israel and opened up the borders of Israel to everyone who would have faith in him. But we're one minute over. So next week, we're going to look at Leviticus 19 and then hopefully 20 the week after. I'll see you then.